recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 22nd, 2013. Thank you all for listening, and praise Yahweh. Let me state that Christagenia now has five internet streaming, well, streaming internet radio servers. Eventually, only three of them are going to be relegated to live broadcasts, and two will be designated for reruns of past programs. I set up um, radio5.christagenia.org. You could put radio5.christagenia.org colon 8000 into your Winamp or VLC or Windows media player and pick up our stream. You could also put it into several different media players that operate on Android smartphones. The newest Android smartphones are having problems with Adobe Flash. They're not coming with Adobe Flash, and and that includes mine. There's a way to get around that. The way to get around that is by finding a media player applet for your smartphone. It'll play a stream, a network stream, I have a couple of them installed on my own smartphone that I've played with, my own Android that I've played with. Or by using the the Christagenia audio feed, which is http colon slash slash christagenia.org slash audio slash feed. And you'll be able to feed that address into your iTunes and iTunes will download our podcasts to your device and you'll be able to play them. So there's several ways to get around the lack of a flash player. I've actually had um, two inquiries this week. People with um, smartphones which are not being supported by Adobe Flash for some reason. I imagine that sooner or later Adobe might straighten it out. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Adobe's a, a public. It, it's not an open source company. It's it's a um, a public for profit corporation, and and their mentality is a little different than, than the open source software community that I'm accustomed to. I try to use all open source pro- open source software and, and um, it does good by my low budget. The um, radio4.christagenia.org, I, I hope to set it up possibly this weekend and, and it will be relegated to playing reruns from, well, probably about 120 or 130 or so of our 2012 podcasts, and it'll play them for the rest of the year, probably. I do that because several of the Christagenia radio, internet radio stations are listed publicly on AOL Shoutcast. They don't get a lot of listeners, but it's another... I, I have the servers to manage my websites anyway, so I may as well take advantage of having the servers and, and run a copy of Shoutcast, which really doesn't cost me anything at all to run. And it's another public outlet for Christagenia and for our Christian identity message. 
as many public out free public outlets as I can take advantage of, I will. And that's why I'm still broadcasting on TalkShoe, even though I don't need it. Last Saturday, Sword Brethren and I did a two-and-a-half-hour program, which I called The Universalism of Eli James. It has already been accessed from my main website over 600 times. I pray that it's accessed 6,000 times. I have since been contacted by several people who have written to Eli concerning material presented in that program. And I have been informed that all he is doing is making ad hominem attacks against my background, against my character, and he makes those attacks along with emotional appeals attempting to demonize me. He also claimed that he challenged me to a formal debate, which I supposedly refused. The man is a psychopath and a liar. It would be preferable when people wrote to him that he address the scriptural issues which were raised rather than resort to such calumny. We made during last week's program, no offhand remarks, no off-color remarks about Eli James. We did not attack his checkered background. We did not attack his highly dubious ethnicity. We did not attack his character. We only focused on the issues of biblical principle which are in dispute. By his fruits, his true nature is revealed. I've been asked about the word human. It wasn't really planned for me to answer this tonight, but I, 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 the last minute I got out my Latin dictionary so I could make a point. There's a lot of things in Christian identity. There's a lot of um, arcane little things in, in, in Christian identity that have been repeated over and over again for years, and they're not always necessarily correct. And the derivation of the word human is one of them. A lot of people would insist that the word human, and, and, and I'm not endorsing this because it's wrong, a lot of people would insist the word, that the word human comes from the, that the word hue as in color and the word man. And that's quaint, and, and, and sometimes we would like it to fit, and, and well, well, of course, it seems to fit from a Christian identity perspective, but it's not right. In Latin, the word humane, as we know it in English, spelled the same way. I'm sure it wasn't pronounced the same way. Humane means like a human being, politely, gently, with compassion, I'm reading from the New College Latin and English Dictionary by John C. Troutman. And I find this to be actually a, a um, I quoted this dictionary in my essay, Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name. I find this dictionary to be actually pretty reliable most of the time. I mean, I haven't really found it to be at, at great fault in any of its definitions, so I think it, it's pretty reliable. The word humanitas means human nature, 
humanity, kindness, compassion. Humanitaire is an adverb, which means like a human being, gently or with compassion, reasonably. Humanitus means humanly. Humanus means all the human being. It's an adjective. Human, humane, kind, compassionate, courteous, cultured, refined, civilized. Humilis, the word from which we get humility. Humble, lowly, poor, obscure. I could go on. I've made my point. Human is basically a Latin word. If you want to establish that it comes from the words hue and man, that's fine, but you would have to establish that hue and man mean in Latin what they did in English, and the truth is that they're not even Latin words, right? They're not Latin words. The Romans didn't use those words. So therefore, humanus doesn't have such a derivation. It can't. The word's well-known from Latin writings that, that are much older than the English language. So that's where the word human comes from. Now, I've been asked about my sometimes use of the word human, and let me say that there's the proper Latin definition, because it's a Latin word, right? And then there's, since it's an English word, in English we can have no... Um, single de definition of the word human, which stands on its own in English. A and I would assert that. I would assert that when we look at English, because it's a Latin word taken into English, the, the official definition and derivation of the word can only be found in, in Latin. And there it is. Kind, compassionate, human. That they are, um, they are basically traits that I would find only in the race of man, the white Adamic race. And from that Latin viewpoint, I wouldn't want to apply that word to non-Adamic hominids. Hominids, because I, I, it, it's well, we call them people. And that's the difference I'm, I'm going, going to speak about next. The difference between the real definition of a word and its colloquial use. And colloquially, I have used the word human even of non-Adamic people. And I'm sure that most of us here have done that. Now, whether that's right or that's wrong doesn't really matter. That's the general colloquial use of the term, and we all have been raised in society, and we all use a lot of words colloquially that probably aren't proper usages. And I would classify that word human in that manner. I've used the word human to refer to any hominids, right or wrong, whether that usage is considered right or wrong is immaterial, that's the general colloquial use of the term in society. I prefer to use the term man. I prefer to use it only of white people. I'm sure that I've used terms, phrases like black man and China man and 
Indian man or whatever, the word man originally referred only to white men and didn't really incorporate any idea that it should refer to adult male hominids that were not white men. So when I use the word human, I think in terms of, of more in terms of the term Enosh. That may not be the proper use of the term if we read the Latin and insist on using the Latin definition, but it is the colloquial use of the term. In the Old Testament, the term Enosh was used of any adult male hominid. It was used many times right from the book of Genesis, right from the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis, of the Adamic patriarchs. Are we Enosh? Well, yes, we are Enosh. We are all mortal men. Enosh is the mortal man. But then white men are also Adam. And Adam is the man made in the image of God who bears the spirit of God, which only white men bear. So a white man can be an Enosh, generally, in colloquial usage, and the Bible did use it this way on many occasions. That could be proven, just open up a Strong's Concordance. It was used of white men often. Speaking of the mortal man, the human, the human being, the being, the male dying biological body. And that's how I use the term human. In a colloquial sense, not in its original, not in the sense of its original Latin definition, right or wrong. It's difficult to define our terms because we in CI have such a different Weltanschauung or worldview from the mainstream. The word Adam, of course, should only be applied to white man. And it should never be applied to the other races because they are not Adam. They cannot be Adam. They can't become Adam. They can't become a kind that they are not. We, well, if that were possible, we would have evolution, right? It's not happening. With that, we will move on to Amos Part 8, the book of Amos, Chapter 4, Verse 1. I think that Amos will, now that I'm out of the... Um, the historical presentations, I, I, I had good reason for wanting to use Amos at this time as a platform for proving the historicity of Scripture and doing that by presenting many of the, um, the ancient inscriptions that have been dug out of the ground from the Assyrians, things like the that the um, all of the inscriptions of the Assyrian kings, the Taylor prison, things like the Moabite stone, the Lachish ostraca, which we presented here two or three weeks ago. I had reasons for doing that. I, I'm doing that. Be, I did that because I wanted to, at the same time, prove 
the foundations for the historicity of the scripture to many of the people that I've been dealing with lately and addressing lately who aren't necessarily identity Christians or who definitely aren't identity Christians. A lot of them are white nationalists, pagans, neo-Nazis, things like that. If we can show that the Bible definitely has a solid foundation in history and in archaeology that these things, these stories from the Old Testament, that a great number of them can be proven to be true by things that we've actually dug out of the ground. With that knowledge, then we can better address the scoffers and the white nationalists who... who, um, See the Bible as as a book of Jewish fairy tales, which is exactly what the Jews want them to believe. That's exactly what the Jews, where the Jews would like them. That's where the Jews would like us all, so that they can maintain their own peculiar view of, of their own identity, which is a false identity, and so that they could undermine the pillars of Western civilization. So that was important. That now that we're in the more prophetic parts of Amos, I, I suspect that we're going to move a little faster through the rest of his prophecy. Not that I want to rush it. The most, the, the the greater part of the rest of Amos is about prophecy. It, it's prophecy about the sin and, and coming punishment of the children of Israel. There's only so much I should say about that. The text should speak for itself. And with that, we'll start with Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, ye kine, K-I-N-E, ye kine of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. Bashan means fruitful. The land of King Og of Bashan fell to the lot of Manasseh when the land was taken from the tribes of Canaan and divided by Israel. Joshua chapter 17. The children of Israel are likened to kine or cattle. If we had to venture as to why, it is evident that they had worshipped the golden calves of Jeroboam I all throughout the period of the divided kingdom, those golden calves are a major topic in this prophecy of Amos. They're mentioned frequently. Adam was formed in the image of Yahweh, his God. And these Israelite children of Adam would rather worship golden calves. Therefore, they were likened to calves, and deservedly so. Later, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Azariah, Menahem, and Pekah, all who were kings of Israel, and probably some others besides these. All these kings were criticized for doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and for not departing from the ways of Jeroboam, 
the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Of course, when the, when the kingdom was divided after the time of Solomon, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, received ten portions. He received the rule over ten tribes. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, received only Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam was going to go to war against Rehoboam, and the prophets told him not to. And so he abstained. And then he commanded that two golden calves be set up, one set in Bethel and another set in Dan. And he demanded a new priesthood be created. The priesthood of the golden calves. And he demanded that the people no longer go to Jerusalem to the temple of Yahweh, but worship the golden calves instead. And so they did. Many of the subsequent kings, well, at least several of the subsequent kings, let me put it that way, Jeroboam II, I believe, being one of them, and Jehu being another, had, had taken action against the Baal priests and the temples of Baal, but none of them removed the golden calves of Jeroboam I. None of them dissolved the idolatry instituted by Jeroboam I, and they were all criticized for it. Jeroboam I had basically created a new state religion, much like we have today through the IRS 501c3, which is how the government controls the religion modern-day religious institutions in the mainstream. Anyone who has that IRS 501c3 tax-exempt designation is basically just another preacher of the government religion. It doesn't matter what sort of sign he puts out on the sidewalk. So here the children of Israel likened to kind because they're followers and worshipers of the cult of the golden calf. Yahweh had made much the same illustration through the prophet Hosea on several occasions, two to be exact. Hosea chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The word of Yahweh says, For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now Yahweh will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. And then again in Hosea chapter 10, verse 11. And Ephraim is a heifer that is taught and loves to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. Presenting the book of Hosea here some time ago, this passage was interpreted as to mean that although Ephraim deserves death for his sin, Jacob shall prevail against him, meaning that the promises which Yahweh made to Jacob shall prevail over anything which Ephraim does, no matter how badly he screws up. The seed of Israel is preserved not for themselves, but for Yahweh on account of his promises to the fathers. Amos 4, verse 2. 
Yahweh God has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. The Septuagint reading's a little different here. I'd like to read it. I'll be reading a lot from the Septuagint tonight. The Septuagint has this verse. The Lord swears by his holiness that, behold, the days come upon you when they shall take you with weapons, and fiery destroyers shall cast those with you into boiling cauldrons. That can be interpreted in several different ways. Those with you, speaking to the children of Israel. As we witnessed when discussing the captivity of Solomon, or the prisoners of Solomon, which are found in the Septuagint version of Amos chapter 1, verses 6 and 9, in the prayer that Solomon offers to Yahweh upon the dedication of the temple, which is recorded in both 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon foresaw the day when the children of Israel would sin before Yahweh, and for that reason, they would be carried off by those whom they opposed in battle. They would be taken into captivity. However, the warnings concerning these things are even much earlier than this. The first allusion to the captivity of Israel seems to be made even before the Israelites complete the conquest of Canaan. This is found in the attempted curses of Balaam upon Joshua's Israelites. In that part, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 through 22, and I will quote, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remains of the city. And when he looked on Amalek, meaning Balaam, the prophet hired to curse the children of Israel, and he could only bless them, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his later end shall be that he perish forever. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, as thou puttest thy neck in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted until Asher shall carry thee, he's addressing the children of Israel, shall carry thee away captive. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there were the blessings of obedience and the consequences of disobedience, which are laid before the children of Israel by Yahweh. We read in Deuteronomy 28:25 that one of the consequences of disobedience is that Yahweh shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed in all the kingdoms of the earth. And so we have it here. This is what Amos warns here. 
in his oracle against the children of Israel. It is the same thing which his contemporaries, Hosea and Isaiah, were also warning the nation that they were about to be carried into captivity for their sins. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see a promise of recovery from that captivity. And we can see that the time for that recovery is near. When the descendants of the children of Israel perceive what has become of them, and they consider it, and they repent of their sins, and I will quote Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things that come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, and shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day. Thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. And if any of thine be driven out into the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. This scattering and gathering of the children of Israel, described in Deuteronomy, is the same one referred to by the Apostle John in his Gospel at John 11, verse 52, where he says of Christ that he would die not only for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. Of course, John was referring only to Israel and not to any Jews. Christ told the Jews, he told the Edomite Jewish Pharisees and scribes that he was addressing, that they would be thrust out and many would be gathered from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. It's the same gathering that we're told of all the way back in Deuteronomy. Amos 4, verse 3. And you shall go out at the breaches. The King James has some added words here in italics. Every cow at that which is before her, which make little sense. And you shall cast them into the palace saith Yahweh. There are parts of Amos which, although I haven't tried an interpretation myself from the Hebrew, look like they were awfully difficult to understand. 
Notice the reference to cows is in italics, which means it was added by the translators. I'll read the New American Standard Version of Amos 4.3, which reads thus. You will go out through breaches in the walls. That makes a lot more sense of people who are going to be besieged by an enemy. Each one straight before her, and you will be cast into Harmon, declares Yahweh. From Brenton's Septuagint, Brenton's translation of the Greek, Amos 4.3, And ye shall be brought forth naked in the presence of each other, and ye shall be cast forth on the mountain, Roman, saith the Lord. Now the Greek says Ramon, not Roman. I don't know why Brenton wrote an O there when it's an E. And that spelling also stands for Ramon in 2 Kings 5.18, where the house of Ramon in the King James Version is a place of idolatry. Elsewhere in the Greek, where Ramon is mentioned, which is quite often, the spelling is, is a little different. Harmon, Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 2038, is from a Hebrew word which means a castle or a high fortress. And that's the word which the King James Version translated palace in Amos 4.3. The Septuagint Version almost seems to be derived from an errant transliteration of that word, where it says, Ramon, rather than Harmon. But then again, to be cast, to, to be dragged out of the city, either brought forth naked or going out through breaches in the walls, depending on how you want to interpret the first clause, and being cast into a place of idolatry. Now that makes sense if you want to interpret the house of Ramon, where Ramon appears in the Septuagint. So, there's no doubt that Amos, that, that the, um, the versions we have, and we're going to see further evidences of this as we proceed, that there's no doubt that the version which we have of Amos in the Masoretic text is not perfect, but I'm not so sure the Septuagint is either. I have not yet seen a translation of Amos 4.3, of a single passage, which I may venture to understand with any certainty, it seems to reinforce in one way or another the idea that captivity is imminent for the children of Israel. This punishment of captivity is against those who oppress the poor of their own people, as the, this chapter in Amos opens. The next part of Amos's prophecy chastises the idolaters. Verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. And bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. The Septuagint has and your tithes every third day rather than after three years. Bethel was the seat of idolatry, 
of one of the two golden calves set up by Jeroboam I, the other one being in Dan. Gilgal was a center for the prophets, and it was often criticized by the prophet Hosea in his oracles against the children of Israel. Hosea, remember, was a contemporary of Amos. Hosea 9.15 says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. Another reference to the coming captivities. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Amos 4, verse 5. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. And proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith Yahweh God. Sacrifices. The priests were barred from offering sacrifices with leaven. Leviticus chapter 2 from verse 11. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto Yahweh shall be made with leaven. For ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to Yahweh made by fire. The word meat in the original English referred to food. It referred to food in 1611, not to flesh. It was a word generally used of food. The first ten verses of that chapter described meat offerings which were in the form of cakes of flour. And leaven was forbidden. Again, the Septuagint reading of this verse is quite different. And I quote, And they read the law without, meaning publicly, right? They read the law publicly. And called for public professions. Proclaim, proclaim aloud that the children of Israel have loved these things, saith Yahweh. There's a lot of differences in this chapter and, and some differences in chapter 5 also between the Septuagint and the King James versions of Amos. We've already seen some differences in chapter 3, especially in chapter 3, I think it was verse 11, which mentions Tyre, in, in the, um, the city of Tyre in, in the Septuagint version, and the King James doesn't mention that. The Dead Sea Scrolls version of Amos is heavily fragmented in these chapters, and therefore it can't even serve as, as an arbiter between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, not in Amos, hardly. In the Masoretic text here, it seems that the children of Israel publicly proclaimed the acts of their own idolatry without shame. The Septuagint version seems to be saying that, they, that the law would be read publicly and that the sin of the children of Israel would be openly confessed. Which one should be the reading, of course, is basically up for grabs. Verse 6. 
And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, saith Yahweh. Cleanness of teeth is, of course, a reference to famine. Cleanness of teeth and want of bread refer to the same thing. The language of the Bible often repeats itself in a different fashion, one phrase after another, both phrases referring to the same thing, in order to stress a point that happens at times, that that literary device is used at times, even in the New Testament. Here, Amos chastises the people because even in a time of famine, they do not call on Yahweh their God. And with that, I will read verses 7 through 11. And also, I have withhold in the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the peace whereupon it rained withered not. I'm sorry, whereupon it rained not had withered. King James language is difficult to understand at times. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith Yahweh. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the pommel worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith Yahweh. I have overthrown some of you, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. We would expect it to say, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith Yahweh. If we believe as we should, that Yahweh created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, except for those parts which, and those things which man is corrupted, of course, then we must believe that Yahweh has efficacy within his creation, and that famine and plenty and drought and rain are indeed within his providence. Leviticus 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach under the vintage. And the vintage shall reach under the sowing time. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. The historical books of the Bible are indeed historical as we have seen many corroborating witnesses from archaeology here in the first several segments of this presentation. However, those historical books are by no means complete. 
In many cases, there are only brief descriptions of the reigns of kings who sat on a throne over Israel or Judah for years, and little about what transpired during those years is mentioned. There was a famine in the days of King David, mentioned in 2 Samuel 21, and a pestilence in 2 Samuel 24. There was a severe famine in the days of Elijah, mentioned in 1 Kings 18. Not long after, in the time of Elisha, there was a famine in Samaria as it was besieged by the Syrians. It was a famine so bad that women were eating their own children, described in 2 Kings chapter 6. Yahweh delivered the city and used four lepers, the most despised of men, to make that delivery evident. Another drought and a resulting famine occurred a short time later, and it is only given brief mention in 2 Kings chapter 8. The children of Israel were not spared from destruction in these instances for their own sakes. The famine of Samaria described in 1 Kings 6 did not end because the people repented. It ended because Yahweh wanted his people to have this example. The people were spared for the sake of God's word. Further on in 2 Kings chapter 8, we are told explicitly as to why our sinful ancestors were spared the wrath of God. In verses 16 through 19, and I quote, And in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Thirty and two years old he was when he began to reign. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Yet Yahweh would not destroy Judah for David his servant's sake, as he promised to give him a light always and to his children for the sake of the promises made to the fathers, do the children of Israel have deliverance, and never for their own merit. So it is today also. And we see as much in the announcement of Zechariah, the father of John, John the Baptist, which tells us the purpose of the ministry of his son and of the coming of the Christ, which is recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 75, where it says, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited us and brought about redemption for his people and has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. Of course, 
none of us have yet accomplished that. But our preservation is only on account of our ancestors and the promises Yahweh made to them. It's not on our own account. In modern times, we have floods and we have drought. We have pestilence and we have disease. And no one thus affected ever even considers what manner of sin they have committed or what manner of sin they have allowed to exist in their communities that they should suffer such things. These calamities are clearly punishments from Yahweh our God. We have only been deceived into thinking that natural disasters somehow originate from other sources. Today we are even further deceived by those who claim that such things are caused by man and that they can be controlled by man. In truth, man has no efficacy on nature outside of the providence of God. When man tries to create his own world, he fails. And his actions only help to contribute to the punishment he shall receive for mocking God. Good stewardship is the man who functions within God's law, not in spite of it. This understanding begs another question. Should we help disaster victims since disasters befall men when they dwell unrepentant in sin? As Christians, we should indeed help our brethren who are fallen no matter the reason for their fall. However, we are also obligated to explain to them why it is that bad things happen to people and even to apparently decent people. Christ informs us in Luke chapter 13 the tyrannical government, as well as unexpected calamity, are judgments from God. Verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Yahshua answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We often hear it argued, usually by the Jew bastards, that if there was a just and beneficent God, that bad things would not happen to good people. But in whose eyes are people good? Leviticus chapter 5 from the first verse tells us, 
and of the soul sin, and hears the voice of swearing, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it, if he does not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. It is not good for us as individuals to simply be good. Rather, it is a matter of God's law that if we do not stand against the evil which we witness, then we become responsible for it. The reason for my last Saturday podcast. Likewise, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, and I quote from verse 28, And just as they do not think it fit to have Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind to do things not fitting, being filled with all injustice, fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, murder, strife, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, pretentious, contrivers of evil, disobedient to parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, heartless, merciless, such as these who knowing the judgments of God, that they practicing such things are worthy of death. Not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them. Not only they who do those things, but those who approve of the people doing those things. These traits that Paul lists here are a perfect description of our society today. The rampant sexual deviancy among our young people, the race mixing, fornication, the rebellion against traditional morals, the rebellion against parents, are all the punishment from God because our people did not seek his knowledge, knowledge of God and God's will. We can blame the enemies of God for all of our woes, but they are not the cause of the problem. Rather, they are the result of the problem. Evil prevails because we refuse to open the word of our God and to read, to understand what is good. The seeds of today's problems were sown a hundred years ago. When we as a people accepted the economic rule of the Jew and slaughtered our own brethren at his beck and call in the wars which he created. We cannot justly expect our conditions to improve as long as our people worship the enemies of our God. With the current state of what was once Christendom, it is a wonder that we do not yet suffer drought and famine. Now we hear a lot of talk today of resistance against the present tyranny. We hear a lot of talk about guns and gun rights. But tyrants don't care about rights. And all of the guns we can hold will do us no good unless we first turn to our God and seek his will. Cleansing ourselves of all that he rejects. 
from the 33rd Psalm. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Yahweh looks from heaven and beholds all the sons of man, the sons of Adam. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. No king is saved by an army. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse, a chariot of war, an implement of transportation in war. A horse is a vain thing for safety. So is a Humvee, right? Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is upon them that fear him. Upon them that hope in his mercy. To deliver, them, to deliver their souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. Much like Paul's discourse several times, Ephesians chapter 6 comes to mind. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Yahweh, be upon us according as we hope in thee. For us there is no salvation without our God. All the guns in the world aren't going to help you without your God. And if you take the side of sexual deviance and race mixers, You won't have the help of your God. Verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains, and createth the wind, and declareth unto man. What is his thought? Man finds that in his word, right? That makes the morning darkness and treads upon the high places of the earth. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. Israel would meet their God by experiencing experiencing his judgment, which he pronounces here through the prophet. These judgments were also being pronounced, to a much greater extent, by Isaiah and Hosea at this very same time. That God was true. The Israelites indeed learned when their cities were destroyed. And when they were taken into Assyrian captivity, as the prophets announced, and as we see here in Amos. Today, at this very time, we are in a very similar situation. 
It can be established that the word of our God indeed forewarned us about the very tyranny which we now suffer, that our kingdom would be handed over to the beast in Revelation 17, 17. Only now we do not await entry into captivity as the Israelites of Amos' time were warned. Rather, we await deliverance from captivity. The same captivity which the people of Amos' time, our Saxon ancestors, were taken into. The Septuagint reading of Amos 4, 12, and 13 is, again, quite different. I'll read it. It's, it's quite interesting. Therefore, thus will I do to thee, O Israel, because... Nay, because I will do thus to thee, prepare to call on thy God, to call on thy God, rather than to meet thy God, O Israel. For behold, I am he that strengthens the thunder and creates the wind and proclaims to men his Christ. On Christon, in the accusative case, the anointed, forming the morning and the darkness, and mounting on the high places of the earth. Yahweh God Almighty is his name. So we see a messianic prophecy here in Amos. In the Septuagint, which we don't see in the Masoretic text, The Masoretic text has, and declareth unto man what is his thought. Amos 5.13. I'm sorry, Amos 4.13. I'm not up to chapter 5 yet. We'll be there before the end of this evening. The word thought is siak, and it means, according to the new Strong's lexicon, it means thought. I just thought I'd have to check that out. Wondering how it may be confused for Christ, but the Masoretic text was created by Jewish rabbis in the 6th century AD or thereafter, and it is, um, there, there are many messianic prophecies in the Septuagint which are not in the King James. Although there are some significant messianic prophecies in the King James, in, in the Masoretic text, which did survive. The early chapters of Isaiah come to mind. Amos chapter 5. Verse 1, hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Surely the virgin of Israel is no more because Israel is being divorced from Yahweh, her God. 
now Israel is the great whore of Revelation, which has joined herself to the beast. Yes, the days of virginity are over. Verse 3. For thus saith Yahweh God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. Ninety percent of the people would die or go off into Assyrian captivity. The Assyrian inscriptions tell us that from Samaria alone, at one time, over 22,000, I think it was, were taken captive into Assyria from one city. That some were indeed left behind is revealed in the later biblical records, such as those of the reign of Hosiah, the king of Judah. From 2 Chronicles chapter 34, long after all of Israel was taken away by the Assyrians, from verse 1, I will quote, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. He never went off the path, right? For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, and the groves, and the carved images, and the molten images. And they broke down the altars of Balaam in his presence. And the images that were on high above them, he cut down. And the groves, and the carved images, and the molten images, he broke in pieces, and made dust of them, and strewed it upon the graves of them that sacrificed to them. And he burned the bones of the priests upon their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even on the Naphtali with their mattocks round about. In the subsequent verses, there's every indication in 2 Chronicles 35 that there are indeed people from Israel who were not taken into Assyrian captivity and who were not killed. Many of these Israelites left behind were among those peoples who were later known generally as Samaritans. Therefore we see the Samaritan woman at the well proclaim to Yahshua Christ that our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And she also said, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. She was definitely an Israelite. John chapter 4, verses 20 and 25. Of course, there were many other mixed people in Samaria. There were many Canaanites in Samaria. Not all of the Samaritans were Israel. But there were many Israelites also left behind. They were despised by the Judeans because they couldn't prove their lineage from the books. They had lost their records in the Assyrian conquests. Amos 5, verse 4. 
For thus saith Yahweh unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek ye Yahweh, and ye shall live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it. And there shall be none to quench it in Bethel. From Isaiah 51, where the prophet is addressing the dispersed of Israel in the isles. And I quote, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. This is a common theme, as I read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Earlier in this presentation this evening, Yahweh says, and it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee. You can't call them to mind unless you know who you are. Look under Abraham your father and Sarah it for you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. The same message Paul has to the Romans explaining what the faith of Abraham was, the belief in that statement of God, which Paul explains. In Romans chapter 4, only Christian Israel, only Israel identity, bears the truth of this message. From Jeremiah chapter 50, where the prophet illustrates the fall of Babylon, and I quote from verse 4, In those days and in that time, saith Yahweh, the children of Israel shall come they and the children of Judah together. Going and weeping. They shall go and seek Yahweh their God. 
They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to Yahweh in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. It was discussed earlier that Gilgal was renowned as the home of the prophets. Bethel was one of the major seats of idolatry and home of one of the two golden calves set up as the new state religion by Jeroboam I after the kingdom was split from Judah. From Hosea, chapter 8, Hosea was a contemporary with Amos. I'll read from verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Thy calf, O Samaria, has cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also. The workmen made it, therefore it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. The forsaking of idolatry by Israel is a major theme in the prophecy of Isaiah. Here from Isaiah chapter 2. For the day of Yahweh of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of Yahweh and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Our ancestors had to put away such idolatry on more than one occasion. Today we must ask whether we have taken to such idolatry again. It can be effectively argued that we certainly have. Even if our idols are now more sophisticated, now our idols may be sports cars or football teams or television programs, entertainments, stars. If we truly seek after our God, we must first lay all these idols aside. Verse 7 Ye who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. Judgment should be according to the laws of God, lest it be bitter like wormwood 
from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, where the prophet addresses the same people at around the same time. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, that write grievousness which they have prescribed their own laws, right? To turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the rights from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory? The Septuagint interpreted this seventh verse quite differently, where it is esteemed that Yahweh refers to himself, and he says, It is he that executes judgment in the height above, and has established justice on the earth. Hosea chapter 5, verse 8. Seek him that makes the seven stars an orion, and turns the shadow of death into the morning, and makes the day dark with night, and calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out upon the face of the earth. Yahweh is his name. Many people confuse God with nature. Here we see that God is not merely nature, but that he is indeed a being, a personality, an entity which transcends nature. God controls nature. Nature is not God. The stars in the night sky mean nothing to the ignorant and casual observer. However, references such as this one bring to light the antiquity of the traditions which have been written into the sky of Western culture for thousands of years now. Orion is also mentioned in the book of Job along with others of the constellations at Job chapter 9, verse 9, and chapter 38, verse 31. Orion indeed has seven stars, which are interpreted as representing a man. Some commentators have likened this to Christ. He who has the seven stars, which represent the messengers to the seven assemblies, which are in his right hand, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. It is also said that Orion forms a cross, Orion may very well be a reference to Christ. That strengtheneth the spoil against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. Matthew twenty three twelve. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Here we see God proclaim it is him who strengthens the spoiled against the strong. From 1 Peter chapter 5, 
verses 5 through 7. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of Yahweh, and he shall lift you up. Yahweh here claims that it is he who strengthens the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. On a historical note, the children of Israel are the ones being taken into captivity here. That captivity begins probably around 741 B.C. Most of it's over. There were some deportations, and we read the well, we read some appropriate inscriptions. There were some deportations of Israelites after 676 B.C. But for the most part, by the time of Esar Hadan, the Assyrian king, most of the deportations of the Israelites were over. So by 676 B.C., most of the deportations of the Israelites were over. Israel is the spoiled. Assyria is the strong. By about 608 B.C., I, I think it might be 608, it might be 612. I think it's 612 B.C. I get these two dates confused for some reason. By about 612 B.C., the Scythians had destroyed the cities of of the Assyrians. The Scythians in league with the Medes and Babylonians, but the Scythians are given the most credit for it by the historians such as Herodotus, had destroyed the cities of the Assyrians and had come to be masters of all Asia, as Herodotus tells us. A position they held for about 25 years until they, they began to migrate out of Asia in large numbers. So the spoiled, indeed, were strengthened against the strong in that sense. Verse 10. Of course, here in Amos, Israel is not in that position yet. They wouldn't be despoiled and they wouldn't be strengthened against the strong for another 150 years. Verse 10, they hate him that rebukes in the gate, speaking about his people. And they abhor him that speaks uprightly. We recognize the same thing today when we tell people the truth, the truth concerning the sins in society. And they hate us for it. We tell our own white fellows that it's evil to race mix, and they hate us for it, that it's evil to be sexually deviant, and they hate us for it. They hate him that rebukes in the gate, and they abhor him that speaks uprightly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and you take from him burdens of wheat, you have built houses of hewn stone but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of, of them. For I know your manyfold transgressions and your mighty sins, 
They afflict the just. They take the bribe. And they turn aside the poor in the gate from their, from their right. The gate, the gates of the ancient cities were where cases were heard, were where trials and, and matters brought to trial were heard by the city elders in ancient Israel. The Greeks moved their courts to the marketplace. The Hebrews had them in the gates of the city. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 20 and 21 for the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off, that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate, and turns aside the just for a thing of naught. Him that reproves in the gate is he that seeks righteous judgment and reproves the wicked. And here in Amos, we're told that the children of Israel despised that. They would rather take advantage of the poor and the lowly and the weak and the disadvantaged. Verse 13, Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time the prudent shall keep silence in that time. Proverbs 22, verse 3, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Amos 5, 14, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so Yahweh, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. And here we see it. The prudent may be silent on account of what evil may befall them. However, Christ tells us that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised in the third day. And he said to them all, Christ to the apostles, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. It's not godly to be prudent. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Luke 9, verses 22 through 24. And with that we come to Amos 5.15. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. In other words, it's not godly to be prudent and keep silent. It may be that Yahweh, God of hosts, will be gracious under the remnant of Joseph. So we see that while the prudent are silent, because it is an evil time, they are not doing that which is godly. Here Yahweh is chastising those in Israel who have committed evils. And those who seek good are to oppose them as well. Verse 16. Therefore Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas. And they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. 
and in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith Yahweh. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of Yahweh is darkness and not light. Well, there are many parallels between the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord, which brought judgment upon the old kingdoms of Israel and Judah and the situation which the people of God are in today. And while the similarities help us to see the necessity of that judgment upon the present world which we now anticipate, the parallels are not complete. Rather, the judgment upon this old world was one fit for lamentation because the kingdom of God was being brought to naught and his people, those who were destined to survive the carnage, were entering into a period of prolonged captivity. In contrast, in reference to the return of the Son of Man, Christians are told to rejoice. From Luke chapter 21, where Christ is asked about his return and the end of the age, he answers, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth near. Likewise, from Revelation chapter 18, verse 20, when Babylon falls, we see the command, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. At the fall of the old world, Israel went into captivity. We look forward to the fall of the present world. Israel shall be regathered to Christ. While the Israelites of old were told that they had better not rejoice here in Amos, we know that we shall. Amos 5.19 As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall, and the serpent bit him. Shall not the day of Yahweh be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? For most of Israel, there was no escaping the expected calamity. One would be slain or taken captive. Even if one survived, there would be little left of his old life once the Assyrians were done destroying the kingdom. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies the burnt offerings, right? Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. For I will not hear the melody of thy viols, viols, violas, fiddles, violins. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. It is evident that the sacrificial rituals were abused. And the people were unrepentant of their sin, not offering their sacrifices sincerely. Neither did the people judge one another justly, but commonly took advantage of the disadvantaged. 
Christ quoted from Hosea 6.6, which is recorded in both Matthew and Mark, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Likewise, in Isaiah, it is seen that the sacrifices of the people became an abomination to Yahweh for much the same reasons that Amos gives here. And I'll read from verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of Yahweh, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Israel likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's addressing Israel, of course. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith Yahweh? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread in my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot. Away with it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yeah, when you make your prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. This next verse, verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 1, is this, expresses the same problem that Yahweh expressed to Amos, chapter 5, verse 1. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Exactly what the Israelites were not doing. Amos five twenty five. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have borne the tabernacle of Moloch and Kion, your images, the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith Yahweh, whose name is the God of hosts. The offerings of the children of Israel were apparently insincere from the beginning. At verse 26, the Septuagint has, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images of them which you made for yourselves. This passage of Amos is quoted in Acts chapter 7, where we are also given more insight into some of the events of the Exodus, which we do not find in the Old Testament. And I'll read from verse 37. This is Moses who said to the sons of Israel, Yahweh shall raise up a prophet for you from among your brethren, even as me. This is he who, has been, who had been among the assembly in the desert with the messengers speaking to him and to our fathers at Mount Sinai, 
who received the living oracles to give to you, to whom our fathers did not wish to be obedient, but rejected and turned in their hearts to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods which shall go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we know not what happened to him. And they made a calf in those days and conducted a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands. Then Yahweh turned and gave them over to serve the hosts of heaven, just as it is written in the book of the prophets. Have you offered to me victims and sacrifices 40 years in the desert, house of Israel? This is the passage we just read in Amos that Stephen is referring to. And you have taken up the habitation of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha and the images which you have made to worship them. And I shall move you beyond Babylon. Yet in the books of Moses, as they are presently, we see only prohibitions and warnings concerning the worship of the hosts of heaven, such as at Deuteronomy 4.19 and Deuteronomy 17.3. The Hebrew word kion, Strong's Dictionary number 3594, simply means to refer to a statue or a pillar. The word comes from a verb which means to stand erect. As for the name Rampha, as the Christian New Testament has it in Acts chapter 7, verse 43, Rampha comes from the Codex Vaticanus reading of Acts. There are at least seven different spellings of that name in Acts 7.43 among the major extant manuscripts. Some of them agree with the Septuagint. The better codexes actually don't. The Codex Vaticanus has Rampha. The Codex Sinaiticus has Romphan. Adds an N to the word. The Greek words... Rephan, which we see in the Septuagint, and Rampha, or Romphan, which we see in the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, are unknown outside of biblical literature. And therefore, they are not Greek substitutes for the Hebrew name Kion, which appears in the Masoretic text of Amos. There are many who would want to connect the modern Jewish so-called Star of David which really has no relationship to David or his successors, to this star mentioned here in Amos. However, all such explanations seem to be merely conjectural. And stars with various numbers of points were used in many pagan contexts in ancient times. So I would not attribute this star to, to the, um, the star which the Jews use today. I would not esteem them to be the same. Note also that all of the ancient manuscripts of Acts have Babylon at 743. Acts 743 says, the way that the apostle, the, the martyr Stephen quotes Amos in Acts 743. He says, and I shall move you beyond Babylon. 
all of the manuscripts of Acts, the major manuscripts state, I shall move you beyond Babylon. The King James Version of Amos says, you shall, I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus. And the Septuagint agrees. And according to the Hatch and Red Path concordance to the Septuagint, all extant versions of the Greek Old Testament text agree. This is an anomaly which cannot be explained. The relevant section of Amos chapter 5 is wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so again it cannot serve as an arbiter. Why the chapter of why Acts says Babylon is unexplainable when all of the Old Testament manuscripts that are available seem to say Damascus. I'm not sure it's that important, but it is an anomaly. That'll end my presentation of Amos chapters 4 and 5. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. Against the Paul Bashers, part 14. Good night.